Welcome to Science Fiction Double Feature. I'm your host, Liz Lutzkendorf. On this month's podcast, we're talking massive robots from space with author of Waking Gods, Sylvain Nouvelle. Then we find out just how difficult it would be to decipher an alien language with professor of linguistics, Daniel Harbour. Sylvain Nouvelle is a French-Canadian author of the series The Themis Files. The first book, Sleeping Giants, was at first self-published, but then after a very positive review on Kirkus Reviews, he went from having no agent to having film rights snapped up by Sony. The second book in the series, called Waking Gods, has just been released this month. The books don't follow a normal narrative structure. Instead, the story is propelled by interviews with various characters, transcripts of radio communications during missions, and diary entries. So let's delve into the Themis Files with Sylvain. All right. Well, the series is called The Themis Files. Uh, first book is called Sleeping Giants. It begins with an 11-year-old girl who uh, uh, goes through the, the woods and uh, falls through a hole and finds herself in the palm of a giant metal hand. Uh, years later, uh, her name's Rose. She's a scientist, and she leads a team uh, with some pilots scouring the planet for giant metal body parts. And we go from there. Uh, and your second book in the series has just come out. So can you give a brief overview of what people might expect in the book? Yeah. Uh, the book's called Waking Gods. Both of them have amazing covers, by the way. I've been the luckiest guy when it comes to book covers. And uh, while well, Waking Gods uh, starts nine years after the events of the first book, uh, there are a lot of answers in there for because there were some unanswered questions in the first one. Uh, hopefully, there are some new interesting questions being asked. And uh, it's uh, what's well, bigger, darker, faster. The stakes are higher in book two for everyone, for the characters, for us, for everybody. <laughs> uh, I remember tweeting about halfway through going, oh my god, this is so much darker than the first book. <laughs> um so you said in previous interviews for Sleeping Giants that the inspiration for that book came from coming up with a backstory for a robot that you wanted to build him. Uh, did you have to find new inspiration for uh, the sequel, or was it a continuation of that story? No, it was was certainly a well, it was a con- continuation of that story. And writing book one, there were so many things that I wanted to do. So when it came time to write book two, it was pretty much all done in my head. I knew where I was going with it. Now writing book three. <laughs> <laughs> what I found really interesting in, in the kind of reading for this interview was that you sent your manuscript for uh, Sleeping Giants to lots of people and then everything kind of came at a rush. So uh, like with an agent in a movie, how was the experience of getting your second book finished? Was it just kind of a deadline and everything was a lot easier? No, actually the deadline thing I'm going through right now uh, <clears throat> with book three, well, uh, the book world and the movie world, they move very, very slowly. After my, the, well, the, the movie rights sold to Sony and the book sold to Del Rey and Michael Joseph in the UK, and it took a while for it to come out. So when, when Sleeping Giants was released, I had already written Waking God, uh, or at least most of it. 
and then we went through some edits and so on. But I mean, I, I, I wasn't rushed with it in any way. Um, it's a different experience, though, because the, the first one I wrote for the fun of it. Uh, so no pressure. I could write, not write, finish it, not finish it. It was just for me more than anything. Uh, book two, someone had bought it, so it's a little different experience. Uh, but it was fun. I, I got, you know, I knew the characters better. I got used to the format. I sort of kind of knew what worked best and what didn't. I, I was eager to, to, to jump back into the universe, too. So it was a really fun experience. Uh, I thought it was going to be more stressful than that. <laughs> so the third one is slightly more stressful then? Well, I, I'm slightly more behind on the third one, but I, <laughs> we're getting there. Fun to write, though. What I really liked about the first book and the second book was the the format in which you're writing. Uh, so you have interviews and transcripts. Uh, why did you choose that kind of narrative structure? Well, I, I like non-traditional narrative structures. I, I, I have a thing for epistolary novels to begin with. Uh, one of the first books that just blew my mind was uh, Dangerous Liaisons, uh, Les Liaisons Dangereuses bunch of people writing letters to each other and all they do is lie basically so you you have to figure everything out for yourself because the real story isn't really in the book and I thought this is so cool a writer who trusts me to figure things out and uh, so I, I kind of like the, the the idea I thought it fit the concept really well too the this old top secret project uh, that no one would really be aware of of and so my, my thought was well what if i wrote the, the paper trail that it would leave behind you know i i started with it I, at first i wasn't really sure exact shape it was going to take until i figured out the interviewer and after that just it just clicked and i just went with it the interviewer is my favorite character what i really uh found interesting though is that even though you have these kind of uh i guess like non-narrative texts well they're narrative in a sense uh each character still maintained a sense of style you could really tell their personality uh was that something that came naturally or did you have to kind of change it when you were editing it no it sort of came naturally well with most of the characters the interviewer i don't know he just he's he sort of he feels natural to me uh, Kara is the easiest one for me to write. I could write, you know, if, if it was a whole book of Kara, it would take me about a day and a half to write. She just, I can channel my inner Kara and then it's over. Uh, Rose is fun. She, she needs, she requires research though, because she talks about things I know nothing about. Uh, Vincent is the tough one for me. I, I, I need to work at him. He doesn't come out as naturally as the other one. But no, I mean, you, you get to know these these people just by you know spending time with them like you would in, in real life. Did you have to, to cut anything particular that you really wanted to leave in uh, for like you know if you wrote too much Kara because she was really fun? Uh, not really. I mean I'm a little master of my my own universe here. If I really wanted something to be in the book, I'd probably be in there. Uh, there are things that I tried not to do in book one that I ended up in book two, but I knew they were going to be in book two from the get go. So both books are, are very cloak and dagger, I, I guess is the way I'm going to phrase it. Very secretive, lots of kind of things happening on. Uh, it's, it feels like a sci-fi thriller if that was a genre. Was that what you were aiming for? Well, I like grounded science fiction. So that's why, it had, you know, Sleeping Giants happens here now. And, it, it, you know, in many ways, it, 
you could replace the alien element with with anything else, like the Illuminati, and you'd end up with something closer to uh, uh, the Da Vinci Code. Or I mean, it's a the book one is basically a big treasure hunt with a fantastic element in it. Uh, <clears throat> that alien element plays a much bigger role in book two. But in, in book one, I was inspired by, by many things. Some of them have nothing to do with science fiction, you know, like old Tom Clancy novels and uh, sort of all the political aspects of this and uh, Michael Crichton. So book two is a different animal, but, but yeah, there were certainly uh, thriller inspirations in, in book one. It's actually classified as a thriller on a bunch of sites. In Sleeping Giants, there's the the one sequence where uh, Vincent has to go through some horrible surgery, and there's lots of really kind of horrible situations that you put the characters through. And Waking Gods is no different. Do you know how much of that's going to happen as you're writing, or or do certain scenes happen because of spur of the moment inspiration? A little bit of both. I, I I'm a I'm a plotter. I I need to plot a lot before I write. These books take forever, take forever to plot because it, the, the story itself doesn't take that long. Uh, but then I need to chop it into pieces and figure out what point of view I'm going to use for each scene, whether I'm going to go through it live, mention it afterwards, not mention it at all, let people figure it out. You know, what are the key things that I want to put in, in each of these little chapters? Once I have that, then I start writing. Once in a while, yes, yeah, something will happen where I'll just feel like it and and put someone through a little more hell than they really needed to go through. Uh, most of it, though, is, is, is already sort of pre-arranged. Vincent sort of is central to the plot of book one, so he, that, was, that was necessary and certainly part of the story. I also really enjoyed the kind of nonchalant attitude of the Londoners when, uh, when the first kind of Themis-like robot appears. Uh, I know you did lots of wandering in your youth. Uh, did you ever live in London uh, before to get that kind of feeling? Because it felt spot on. No, I've never actually been to London. And I hope I get some excuse to go, a book tour or something, like a convention. But I, I really want to go. I've never been to the UK at all. <laughs> and just like Sleeping Giants, Waking Gods leaves us with this teaser at their end. Uh, can you give us any hint about what the third book is going to be like? No. <laughs> I, uh, you know, people will compare Waking Gods to uh, The Empire Strikes Back because it's the dark middle book. And I would say don't expect the Ewok celebration song in the third one. Chances are it's not going to be a hell of a lot brighter and happier. Uh, but uh, no, there are really fun things coming. I'm having a, a great time. It's bigger in scope than, than, even, than even book two. Uh, and, but it's also it's a very human. Uh, while the scope is getting bigger, um, the story is really about the characters. So I think it'll be, a, it'll, people will like it. I hope so. It's a, it's a fun book to write anyway. That's all I can say. And I like to ask people uh, who I interview, what are the books they like to read right now? What are the things, sci-fi or other, that you're reading? Well, right now I'm not reading. I'm, I'm, I'm behind with the deadline. I, <laughs> I, I get, well, I have my own TBR file. I got books being sent to me. I, I am so behind on everything. Uh, recently... Uh, I've, I've reread Quantum Night by Robert Sawyer because it's uh, it's interesting given the current political climate. Uh, it's a 
such a fun book for the time. And uh, I was talking yesterday, uh, someone was asking me for advice, and, and based on their uh, their taste, I, I uh, suggested to them they read The Flicker Man by Ted Kosmatka, uh, which is such a great book with it, with this insanely cool premise. I, I won't say anything about it, I'll spoil it, but uh, it just the, the idea for that book is so great. I was jealous of it. But, yeah, wish I'd come up with that myself. Do you, do you have an idea what you want to do after you conclude this series, or is it going to continue after book three? We're making it a trilogy, so book three will have an, 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 well, less of a tease at the end, probably. That's not to say I don't want to come back to these characters afterwards. I, I love these people. I love that universe. I, I want to keep going if, if people want me to. Uh, I have other projects, you know, I have a short story more on the horror side coming out soon. I have a, another top secret project that I can talk about that I'm really excited about. If you just follow me on, on social media, as soon as I can spread the word, I will. Uh, but it's a really fun project. Uh, no, there are other things going. I have this weird idea for a novel in my back of my head that eventually I'd like to put on paper. But at some point, yeah, I'd like to come back to the to the tennis files. You clearly love sci-fi. Was that always the kind of natural place that you would go to write, or uh, you've mentioned thrillers before? Oh well, I I grew up with with, with science fiction. I, I was I'm 44, right? So Star Wars is basically my youth, and it's, I remember <clears throat> me and my friends saving our money so we could go watch the. Um, Empire Strikes Back in theater, and when Return of the Jedi came out, they uh, they showed the three movies in a row. So you had these like I don't know how old I was, ten maybe. Uh, but the, the kids were just dying after I don't know nine hours in the movie theater, and, and it was a great time too because it's before the internet, right? So at the end of the Empire Strikes Back, it, it, for years we're like, no, he can't be his father. That can't be true. No, it can't. And there's nowhere you can go and check and say, oh, well, really? Oh, okay. Uh, so we had to wait for 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 the the next movie. Years later, it was a fantastic time. I don't know. I I've always been fascinated by space and what's out there. Uh, I have a son now, and uh, I think it's. A, great time to, to be a kid. Uh, <clears throat> I get email alerts when the uh, International Space Station flies uh, over our house. And so we go outside and we watch it. And, and I think it's sound insignificant, but it's, it's a deep thing that the most, the brightest object in, in space, right, that my kid can see, except for the moon at night, is man-made. And I think we're going to get a lot more people interested in, in, in interstellar traveling and, and I don't know and I, well I hope it happened when I was in my 20s I made a list of things I wanted in life uh, I wanted to have a child I wanted a degree because I was a high school dropout and I wanted to go to space so I, I hope the third one happens but I'm two for three that's not not too bad thinking of going to space you must be excited by SpaceX and that sort of thing then yeah, I think these guys are going to change the world. I that that whole contest, like not many people talked about, but I think it it was one of the m most world changing events probably of the, the the last century. Just this idea of opening the the market of, of space travel uh, outside of, of NASA and, and sort of government space agencies, and it you I mean right away you, you could 
see the, the effects and it's going to speed up the whole process of, of going places. Uh, it's a very important moment. Daniel Harbour is a cognitive scientist in the Department of Linguistics at Queen Mary University in London. He's about to start a two-year project on the evolution of writing systems funded by the Leverhulme Foundation. Just with the film Arrival, one of the characters in the Themis files is a linguistics professor, and part of understanding the giant robot Themis itself, the characters need to decipher an alien language. So what makes up any language or writing system? Well, so far as writing systems on this planet go, Writing has been invented four times, and the development has been quite similar in all four cases. So you start off by drawing pictures of the things that you want to represent. So for a sun, you draw a picture of a sun. And then you use those pictures to express ideas. So it's hard to draw a picture of a day, but you can draw the picture of the sun again because you have the sun at daytime. And then um, the really big step that gets you towards a complete writing system is when you use those pictures to represent sounds. So, for instance, it's difficult to draw a picture of S-O-N, son, as in the sense of male offspring. But what you can do in English instead is draw a picture of the S-U-N and then use that to represent the same sound. From there, languages then add a certain degree of sound-based symbols. And how many they add depends on, I think, how complex the grammar is. So particularly as writing systems spread from one language to the next, and associations like the same symbol for son and male offspring cease to make sense, you shift more and more towards sound-based writing. Um, at that point, you can write syllables, which is the most common, or you can write sounds as we do in our alphabet. Uh, and how many types of writing systems do we have? So in total, um, well, we can count as we go. Uh, logographic is the one that I described first, where you draw pictures for the things you want to represent. Um, that's normally combined with a syllabic writing system as well. So you use your picture of a sun to represent the syllable sun, and then you can use it also for Sunday, and this is my sun. Um, and then you move into the alphabet-type systems. Um, so the first one that arose, historically speaking, is a consonant-based alphabet. That's to say an abjad, where you basically ignore vowels. That's what you have in Hebrew and Arabic. Um, then you can add vowels as little kind of squiggles or doodles on top of or below your consonants. So that's what happened in Ethiopian and in Sanskrit and most languages of most scripts of Southeast Asia. So they're called either an abugida after the Ethiopian system or an akshara after the Sanskrit system. Then you get a proper alphabet, as in Greek, and then our alphabet, the Russian alphabet, where vowels and consonants are treated in the same way. They're all independent letters. And then the most intelligent design of writing system from a human point of view is what you find in Korean, where the symbols actually denote the position that your tongue and teeth and mouth need to take on in order to produce the sound in question. So that idea was um, invented twice in human history, once for Korean and once by the father of the inventor of the television, Alexander Melvold Bell, uh, in a system that he used for describing the sounds of all the world's languages. So I think that was six in total. So in the books, they uh, they kind of discover <laughs> a new writing system. So what would be the hardest part about deciphering something like a completely unknown writing system? Uh, and do we have historical examples of that? We have quite a few historical examples, and they're all 
slightly different from each other and all really fascinating in my opinion. The hardest part about deciphering a writing system is simply knowing where to start. Um, imagine you unearth either a tiny fragment of something and you've got no context for it, or else you keep on going and then you've got this whole corpus of this unknown script and you still don't know what to do with it. So somehow you've got to find your way in. And different languages, different writing systems have been unlocked in different ways. The most famous, I guess, is the Rosetta Stone, which gave a way into ancient Egyptian through its two writing systems, the hieroglyphs and hieratic. Well, Demotic was on the stone. Um, so the thing there is you've got a text in a language you know, Greek, and you can use that as a way of getting into the language you don't know. But sometimes you don't have that. So Linear B from uh, Crete is a famous example where uh, people just spent ages coming up with distributional analyses of the symbols and then had to take a really wildly educated guess. Uh, the decipherment of old Persian, of cuneiform, the uh, you know, triangular-shaped writing system of Mesopotamia, um, was also done in the absence of any bilingual, well, in the absence of any helpful bilingual text and is... Uh, a, kind of a really miraculous feat, if you ask me. I mean, they're all kind of miraculous, but the Persian one, I think, is one of my favorites. Have you got time for a quick story? Sure. Um, so the person working on this was um, at uh, basically helping to run a high school in Germany. And this script arrived on his desk, and he, I think he had a bet with a friend as to whether he could make any progress on it. And he realized pretty quickly it was in three different languages, all using the same basic triangle-shaped system. And one of the texts had lots of repeated symbols, so he guessed that that was something like an alphabet. So that's where he started. And he noticed that there were certain words that kept on being repeated. And then he just took a wild psychological guess that the kind of person who would want an inscription like this plastered all over a palace would be saying, basically, I'm fantastic. And uh, so it would be declaring who the person was. So then he took a guess that this repeated word meant king. And in particular, the, the person must have been somebody who used the title King of Kings, who, however, was the first person to use that title, because where it was likely to say son of, King of Kings didn't occur. So then he went off to the history books and started looking around in the Greek histories of the Persian Wars and found that sure enough, there was a King Xerxes who used the title King of Kings. And then the really beautiful bit is that at this time, Sanskrit and Avestan had started to be understood properly by Western scholars. And he noticed that the symbols for Xerxes and the symbols that appeared in the word king also looked kind of similar. And by guessing at values in an educated way, he suddenly came up with something that looked an awful lot like one of the Sanskrit words to do with nobility. And that was the way in. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you need historical records, some really educated guesses about psychology and culture, and then some supporting help from languages that you know about. Oh, wow. So we might be in a bit of a fix if it's a completely alien language with no context. I think that's right. So what all of the deciphering, decipherments that I know of have in common is that there was a language that you could use in order to help you once you got your way in. Nearly all of them used place names or personal names that we happen to know about through history through historical records or because the place name survived. Um, and those two really seem to be the crucial common shared points be between all the cipherings. 
what would be different if we heard the language? It's probably more likely that we'll get a signal from space rather than find anything interesting on our planet, at least, or anything more interesting and alien. Do you get different clues to how the language works depending on whether it's spoken or written? Yes, you definitely do, because we never write down everything we say. So if you think about um, the spelling R-E-V-I-E-W in English, it can either be review, as in to revise something, or it can be review. You know, I, the real estate agent took me around to review the property today. Um, so that's probably not the best example because we don't use review that often. But you get the point. Um, so it can, the word can have two quite different meanings and slightly different pronunciations, but we write it in the same way. The other thing is that writing systems aren't always very good at using punctuation, whereas people do tend to speak in phrases. They pause, always, not always in very helpful points. Um, Tony Blair, for instance, had this irritating habit of pausing in the middle of the sentence and then really running his, the, the end of the sentence onto the next one so you could never interrupt him. <laughs> so, yeah, you do get a lot of useful information. On the other hand, you get a whole lot of useless information as well. So the thing about writing systems is that because they're made for speakers who know the language, they tend to write down really the essential information. So the writing system basically says this is the thing you need to concentrate on and you can, at the beginning at least, ignore a whole lot of other stuff. So I imagine getting an alien listening to Donald Trump right now would be very confused, if not confused at English. Yeah, he could be our secret weapon. <laughs> um, so science fiction, I think, has tried to get around this problem of not having any context by using mathematics as kind of a universal language, uh, and that we'd be able to get a primer if we figured out the symbols from 1 plus 1 equals 2 and that sort of thing. Uh, how helpful is mathematics to deciphering a new language? It, somewhat, I think, is the best answer. So certainly in the case of cuneiform, particularly, I think, Akkadian cuneiform, so the cuneiform from Babylon, um, also Linear B, basically all we had, there were no great myths or tracts of philosophy or anything like that. It was just accounts. And then also uh, the Mayan um, decipherment relied a lot on calendars, which involved a lot of mathematics. But the only reason we managed to get to full decipherments is that we also had understandings of the languages that we were trying to decode. So Akkadian is a classic Semitic language. Uh, if you know Hebrew or Arabic, you recognize lots of the roots. Um, we know uh, quite a lot about modern Mayan languages, many of which preserve words that were similar to the ones written you know, a thousand years ago. There have been a few places where mathematics, or rather statistics, has been important in, in decipherment. And things would have been much easier if the people at the time had had computers to help them. But there were people like Alice Kober who worked on Linear B. And for decades, I think, she would, like a couple of decades, she would spend her evenings just writing on little index cards that she'd made herself. She used to keep them in these long cigarette boxes. And she recorded the frequency of every single character in the corpus of Linear B that she had. Um, she recorded also the frequency with which each character was initial, uh, final, or medial, and the frequency with which it was followed by or preceded by any other character. Now, the idea of doing all of that by hand, it, it's just painful. <laughs> so that kind of mathematics has been important in decipherment, and the whole thing could be made simpler if computers were brought to bear on it. But ultimately there's still this very human element of making a judgment as to what's similar to what else, what's important, and then ultimately what kind of guess as the names or purpose of communication was.
So mathematics by itself, I've got to say, I'm quite skeptical of that being really that helpful unless it's supplemented by something else. So in my day job, I work with lots of developers, which of course is another written language or multiple written languages. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Like, is that like a real written language or is that like a kind of hybrid language? Computer code, you mean? Yeah. Well, of course, there are quite a few different computer languages. It's got a very restricted vocabulary. So you can't say things like, well, I mean, you can, but it's not generally used to say things like, I really like maple syrup on my pancakes, but, you know, I'll take honey if there's no maple syrup left. However, the structure of computer code is, well, it's a cross between natural language and, and formal logic. And if you like formal logic, then some of them are easier than others. There's another, you know, lots of sci-fi, they find, like, alien technology and, like, it's no, no doubt a computer. And so would they then have to, like, have this even further step of having to try to understand a language from basically half a language, a very logical, structured language that's not really one? So uh, it's another sci-fi conundrum, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right to ask it. I don't have any helpful answers. <laughs> that's all right. But it's definitely a real question. And again, if we're thinking about a signal from space and it's coming from far away, um, if a signal took a thousand years to reach us and a thousand years to send back, would we be able to understand the writing system or would they still be able to recognize the reply in their own language from a thousand years ago? I think that's a lovely question. So, uh, well, a thousand years before us, uh, we were writing in Anglo-Saxon and the entry for the the year 1017, so a thousand years before us, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle begins, Her on thisum yera fin knutkening to erlong angelkunes richer. You can think to yourself, how, how comprehensible is that? So here, uh, on this year, um, King Knut rose to be king of all the Angles, or the kingdom of the Angles. So, yeah, it, you're right to ask the question. Um, my guess would be that if, you, if you've got a culture that is technologically sophisticated enough to send a signal and wait for the response they would probably also be sophisticated enough to be recording their language and to have hopefully some linguistic experts around who could come back and help them to understand an answer that was written in their language of a thousand years ago. Cool. Uh, I just, I'm kind of enjoying uh, pop culture phrases right now and like, like the whole Bay thing, like that's like now like younger people than me and I'm not that old, which was like, you know, from babe and then baby. And like, you can, I guess, kind of trace it, but like a thousand years, what is a thousand years bay going to look like? Yeah, absolutely. And there's just no way of guessing which one of these things is going to become was, you know, they may die out again a few years later. Um, I mean, think of things like Kawabunga. I mean, actually, no, wait a second. The Ninja Turtles have come back again. So maybe that's going to come back into fashion, but like P.G. Woodhouse using things like Jolly and Dash and all of that, those things have just died out, whereas other flights of fancy just really bed down in the language. I mean, I guess a word like pretty is a good example. Oh, literally is a really great example because it's coming to mean the exact opposite of literally. (laughs) And that's just the way it goes. I mean, nice did the same thing. Um, Nice now means something pleasant. It used to mean something unpleasant. None of the people who bat an eyelid at this change in the, in the meaning of literally, worry about the change in the meaning of nice. 
Uh, I enjoy like my partner's British and I'm Canadian, so uh, there's still some words that I use that are differently, like quite and quite. So if I say it's quite nice, I think it's really nice, and if it, he hears quite nice, that it's not very nice. So even like within the same language, in the same decade, it's uh, we can have a different meaning. So. Uh, hopefully they have a uniform language in whatever planet they're coming from and not the hundreds like we do. <laughs> right. Yeah, that always surprises me about um, science fiction, particularly in movies, I think, more than books, that it's assumed that whatever species we're contacting is going to have this, the whole planet is going to be completely uniform culturally and linguistically and so on. I mean, it's certainly not true for us. If you look at the groups who are trying to make contact with aliens, they belong to a very small section of the planet. And so I don't know why we'd make the assumption that aliens would be any different. Uh, my final question would be, is there anything that we can infer about an alien culture by their language? Yes, I wouldn't push it too far. So for instance, in English, we had to borrow the word million. So we have thousand, that's a native English word, but million we had to borrow from romance. And chances are that's because Back in good old Anglo-Saxon society, they just didn't need to count into millions. And that tells you something about their culture. Uh, in the same way, you know, you take an indigenous language from an Australian rainforest, there's no word for microwave because they don't have microwaves. And so that's one very basic thing you can tell. If you look at a language like Japanese, where there are special forms where, whereby I am polite to you um, or I can denigrate myself, that tells you something about the degree of social stratification and how important that is in the culture. But for the most part, I, I think it's, um, I think language doesn't tell you a huge amount about culture. So, uh, you know, Germany went from being one of the most liberal countries in the world to a fascist dictatorship within a few years. And there was, you know, virtually no change in language. And similarly, nowadays, English is spoken by, you know, Bible bashing fundamentalists, and essentially, they want to live in a version of the Bronze Age, whereas other people who have gone, you know, have gone through the Industrial Revolution and now the Information Revolution, and yet we still speak exactly the same language as them, pretty much. That's all the questions I have. Um, but maybe a last one would be: How would you tackle an alien language if you, if, if like a rival, another science fiction in, uh, story involving linguists came? How would you tackle? a completely unknown language? I would say pretty much as happens in Arrival. So they had a very good linguistic consultant on the film, Jessica Kuhn. Uh, she stopped them making up stuff, and it actually goes the way that you would go. You don't start off with big, complicated things. You just try and pin down very concrete things that you can both see, both talk about. And then from there, you try and embed those concrete objects that you've learned how to name into sentences and then from there, you can start gradually to build up, figuring out the words of the language, but more importantly, the grammatical structure of the language, because that's the thing that ultimately enables you to communicate really complex thoughts. Uh, but it's a very slow and meticulous process, particularly when, uh, so I've done you know, work with speakers of quite a few languages, but we've always had um, mostly English, but sometimes other languages in common. But when you don't have any language in common, the process is much slower. And the worry is, of course, that um, aliens could be f constituted physically and mentally so different from us that it's difficult even to find common points of perception in which to ground your basic investigation of the language. And that's it. Thanks to both Sylvain Nouvelle and Daniel Harbour for their time. 
You can find links to their work in the show notes. We'll hopefully be back next month, but as I'm on holiday for a couple weeks, we might have a slight interruption in our regular monthly scheduled program. Meanwhile, catch up on some of the other books from previous podcasts, like last month's show with Darker Shades of Magic writer V.E. Schwab. Or you can dive into the Themis files if you haven't already. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today. So read wisely. Thanks for listening. 